is presented by the writers and illustrators of the future. They've been providing a means for new and budding writers to have a chance for the creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. Today we welcome award-winning author Luke Wildman. We're going to talk about inspiration, reading, books, and all the things that led to him writing his uh, short story that won the award. Here's Luke. Hi, Luke. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sherry. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm really happy to have you here. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Yeah, um, it's a sunny day here in Indianapolis. So, yeah, going really well. Indianapolis. I was a neighbor. I was in Illinois. I was in Chicago for about a year. Okay. Yeah, my wife is from uh, Waukegan, just outside of Chicago, actually the hometown of Ray Bradbury. So. Cool. Nice. Yeah. I think their library still has a lot of his books, actually. I met him a few times. He was a very nice man. I've always heard that. Yeah, he's a sweetheart. Um, the first time I met him, he spoke at my college, and he was so cute because he was supposed to be talking about his latest book, which I think, if I remember right, was The Martian Chronicles, and, but all he wanted to talk about was dinosaurs. <laughs> he just he it, it was he was he loved dinosaurs and he was just in the mood to talk about dinosaurs. So we talked about dinosaurs. It was. I've always heard he just had a, a huge breadth of knowledge, and so he could just kind of ramble on about any subject and make it interesting. Oh, he was interesting, and funny, and sweet, and very friendly. Mm. He signed my newspaper, uh, my school paper, my college paper. Uh-huh. I still have that. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Because, um, I mean, other times I met him was at conventions, so you could get him to sign a book or, or or something like that. But there were no books, so all I had was he had a, a, the picture and, you know, Ray Bradbury's going to speak at this area. Da, 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 da. And so I just, could you sign somewhere on here? And he goes, ah, sure. <laughs> yeah, his sci-fi short stories are some of the first I ever read, actually. Someone gave or lent me a collection of them when they heard that I was interested in writing fantasy and science fiction because they were just aghast that I had never read any Bradbury. So they lent me this collection of stories. I really distinctly remember the one about the house. I think it's like when the rain comes softly or something like that. But do you know the one I'm talking about? Yeah. Where there's this house that's just automated after the humans are all gone? Yeah, they're sad. Yeah, yeah. The one I like is I Sing the Body Electra with the Electra Grandma. Mm, okay. I'm not sure I've read that one, but... It was actually made into a Twilight Zone. Oh, really? Yeah, it was... Um, it was I think they called it the name because it was by it says by Ray Bradbury and I think they called it the name I Sing the Body Electra did he write the script for it? I don't know I don't remember it was really good Um, the lady who played the grandma was wonderful and um, 
she's you know it was an android. And um, did you ever watch Bewitched? Yes, I have. You remember the guy who played uh, Larry Tate? The oh, boss. I'm not sure. The boss in Bewitched, the one who was always firing Darren. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He was the dad in that episode of the little girl that she was uh, that became quite enamored of the grandma sweetest it was it was a sweet short story and it was a sweet episode of twilight i love the sweet episodes of twilight zone <laughs> even sweeter the romantic ones i'm not a big fan of the scary ones <laughs> there was one with robert redford when he was really really young oh, and you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, he played death. Yes, but it was like a very sweet death. Like yes. He was very genteel and kind and, yeah. Death is a friend that yes. that was gently escorting her um, to the other side. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah, actually, yeah, that that's another favorite. I think that was Richard Matheson, who's another great writer. Um Richard Matheson wrote um, Somewhere in Time or Bid Time Return and he also wrote um, what's the name of it? Robin Williams was in the movie. I can't remember. Anyway, he 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 wrote a lot of books, but he, he wrote a lot of Twilight Zones. He was really good. Okay. But my favorite, oh. favorite Twilight Zone because I'm a writer, I think, is um, it's an episode I can't remember the name of it but Keenan Wynn is a writer and um, I can't remember his character's name sorry I'm old um, <laughs> um, and well I can't remember anything either and I have no excuse he's a writer and uh, he has um, a secretary and a wife and the wife is jealous of the secretary. But it turns out, he, he when he writes something and he talks into his, uh, his um, it's not a dictaphone. It's like a, 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 it's like a, it's a tape recorder of a type. I guess it was a dictaphone. Because um, it was in the 50s, so it probably was a dictaphone. So when he talks into the dictaphone, his characters are so well defined that they come to life. So the secretary is actually created, and the wife was actually created. But and oh, it's a it's a really interesting episode. But my favorite part is the end. Um, Rod Serling is sitting on a desk, and he says, he says, now of course this is really ridiculous. It could never happen. It's a lovely fantasy, and Keenan Wynn is by the fire. And he has this big yellow manila envelope, and it says Rod Sterling, and it's full of tape. Because when he takes the tape and he puts it in the fire, the person disappears. And he goes, Rod, and he throws the whole thing in the fire. And as Rod Sterling is disappearing, he just smiles and shrugs. <laughs> Sounds memorable. I think I've heard of that one. I haven't seen it. Oh God, it's one of my favorites. It's so adorable. I just spoiled it if you've never seen it. <laughs> oh well. 
That's a great episode. Oh, I'll have to look that one up. Really, really worth it. Um, but yeah, I love Twilight Zone. I loved it because I, I like it when there's a show when you don't know what's going to come next. And because it was an anthology, it was so many different. There's slapstick comedies. There was time travel stories. There was it was it. It's a great lesson for someone who wants to be a writer to watch it. Yeah, and I know it got a lot of writers and actors their start in Hollywood as well. Yeah, because it was the fifties, and um, there was a thing that movie stars could not do TV. So all the young Broadway talent was doing the television shows. And that's how they got somebody like Robert Redford. Yeah. Walter Matthau, Grace Kelly. Well, Grace Kelly wasn't in Twilight, so, but she did TV. Uh, Dean, uh, James Dean did live television. Um, there was a lot of people. Grace Kelly became Princess Grace of Monica. Um, okay, yeah, yeah. But when she first started, she was a struggling actress. That she did live television like everybody else. <laughs> mm-hmm. And TV back then was in New York. Before I Love Lucy, right. they didn't film TV. It was a terrible film stock that was really, first of all, when you watch the film, it was not very good, um, the film stock, and it was very flammable and dangerous. So when Desi started the thing about filming Lucy and everybody in Los Angeles started doing film for television, everybody else did because the rerun was born with I Love Lucy. And that, and, and that was for dramas and movies and everything else on television. Before that, we lost so many of the old stuff because it was Cinemascope? I think it was Cinemascope. Um, and um, and it was a terrible stock. It was a really terrible, uh, but that's what they used because that was what the TV cameras used back then. Mm-hmm. Isn't that sad? All that yeah, time. that is. It's a lot of history that's just kind of vanishing. Yeah, it's it was either that or uh, they used to film over. They used to <laughs> erase it. They used to, like, go oh, right. over stock, use it again. So let's say they're doing, like, Playhouse 90, an original thing by Patty Tchaikovsky, who was one of the most brilliant writers. They would show it. It would go live. They'd send it the copies out to all of their affiliates. And then the next week, they'd film over it for the next play. Yeah, that is kind of tragic, kind of a, a snake eating its own tail or something. Yeah. I just it, it, just think of all of those original, creative, Wild West live television shows that we never get to see. Mm-hmm. I don't mean Wild West. I mean, there was no rules. It was, it was sort of like the computer or streaming now. Live television was like streaming. It was there was yeah. no rules. There was no it 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 was pure creativity, and we'll never get to see some of it. 
Isn't that interesting? It is, yeah. A lot of that, like, history of early Hollywood and the things that would eventually evolve to shape so much of our culture, it's it's just really sort of fascinating to see the ways in which it changed. Yeah, I mean, in old Hollywood, I mean, when they were first filming in New Jersey and New York, uh, there were no rules. Um, the actors did their own stunts. Sometimes they held the cameras. Um, uh, the, uh, the old actors from that that survived from the silent movies to the talkies, they told stories about, you know, that's why a lot of them became producers because they knew everything. They did everything. It, it's interesting that, like you say, it's kind of coming full circle now, where it started out with less structure to it, and then it morphed into, you know, the Hollywood that we've known for quite a while, and then now that all these streaming services are coming out, and, like, every company has its own streaming service now, like, we're just getting a lot more kind of off-the-cuff creative shows, and a lot less structure, and it's just kind of shaking everything up again. Yep. I, I think it's a, it, it happened when, um... It happened first the film and then tele live TV, and then uh, when they started filming TV, and then cable was like a big wild west because it, there was suddenly instead of three networks and maybe four local channels and PBS, suddenly there was hundreds of thousands of channels and uh, the FCC couldn't watch everything, and it was crazy. Right. And then with the computer age, um, people had like YouTube and, and all kinds of different things. Another Wild West. And now we have streaming services. And this is another Wild West. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure that you've uh, had to sort of keep up with the rise of like YouTube film journalism and stuff like that. And that impacts what you do. Well, I don't do YouTube, but I do watch it. Um, I, I think it's very interesting. That's what I mean. Like, yeah. yeah. I, I, um, but I'm really sort of sad because I don't actually watch the new innovative YouTube stuff. I'm more like, oh, let me see if I can find one of my old shows from when I was a child. Oh, yeah. Like, it's all nostalgic and it's, it's so comforting, right? Yeah. To find things that we grew up with.
into fantasy and science fiction at a pretty early age was the fact that these were stories about characters who were discovering that the world was much larger than they thought it was, and they were starting to go on journeys and sort of have a search for identity and a search for some sort of homecoming. And to me, because I grew up in sort of an international background, um, I was born and raised in West Africa. Um, my parents are U.S. citizens, and I came back to the U.S. at 19. So I sort of grew up looking at these characters and their journeys through the world and sort of identifying with that a lot. So I think that's one of the things that drew me to writing that stuff eventually, too. That makes sense. Do you have a favorite author? You know, there are too many to list. Um, obviously, I love, like, Tolkien, and I love uh, Robert Jordan, the Wheel of Time series. That's one of my favorites. I uh, My favorite living author is probably Susanna Clark, who wrote Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell, and Kieran Essie, and then The Ladies of Grace to Do and Other Stories is her short story collection. I just love her because she is such an incredible stylist. You know, she can write in any narrative voice and just get the most breathtaking, like, sequences and just, like, layer theme and story and character in a way that I've never really seen anyone else do. So I just adore her. I've never read her, but it sounds really good. Um... When did you start writing? When what was the was this when you were a child, or is it was it college? When did you start? Yeah, I started pretty young. I grew up with my parents reading a lot of stories to me, so they would read like The Hobbit and Narnia and stuff like that to me while I was in bed. Um, James Harriet, like his his veterinary stories. And then when I was in fifth grade, I read The Lord of the Rings for the first time, and I was just kind of sold on it. So I decided that I was going to be a fantasy writer, and I bought a 50-page notebook to begin my first novel. And I went up to my dad, and I told him that I was worried that 50 pages wouldn't be long enough. Aww. And, you know, he was very... He was very kind. He wasn't discouraging or anything, but he was like, he had a little twinkle in his eye and was like, you know, Luke, I think if you uh, get to 50 pages with this novel, you'll be... And so I kept working on that story and actually it ended up being over 200,000 words. Um, I finished it by the time I was done with high school. I had done a few drafts of it. So that was my first novel. And I've written uh, three other novels and a bunch of short stories since then. I think that's adorable. What did your dad think? Uh, yeah, he read it and uh, was very encouraging. My parents were both very encouraging of imagination and always encouraged me to read and uh, just pursue art. So I'm really grateful for that upbringing. Yeah, my parents were like that too. I think that's very important. Parents who read to you, par parents who nurture you, it's so important. Yeah, not having that creative spark snuffed out at an early age is really significant. Yeah, um, I think that is one of the things that, well, sometimes people come back to it, but I think it's harder for them to do it. So, right. So it's very good that your parents did that. That's lovely. 
I think that often also happens to people who grow up in a religious community, which I did. I think sometimes there's a connotation that like using your imagination can be considered kind of frivolous and not not using your talents properly. So I like was immensely grateful that I had you know my parents encouraging me and I had teachers in my life who were telling me that imagination and stories were significant and that they were a good use of time. I think I think that's so true. I mean, I I think one of the first movies I ever saw that told me was okay was um Miracle on 30 uh Miracle on 34th Street. Um, because um, he, Santa Claus, Chris uh, Kringle, is telling Natalie Wood's character, you know, there's uh, encouraging her to use her imagination because her mother had been telling her not to. And he said there was the, how do you put it? Because there's the, um, the United Kingdom nation and the American nation and the imagination. <laughs> it's just another thing. <laughs> I I just went, oh, okay, so it's okay. I knew my parents thought it was okay, but some people on the outside um, didn't think it was okay. So I, I, I was like, oh, my parents are right. <laughs> right. Yeah, it feels very much like sort of a license to create when you receive some advice like that. I think um, that's, why, that's why watching movies and, and stuff, especially old movies, I, I get very sad when I hear people won't watch black and white movies. Uh, first of all, the people who produced those movies chose to make them black and white. Um, they had color. Um, and second of all, can you imagine film noir without black and white? <laughs> right, it'd be a whole different thing. It wouldn't be there. I mean, it wouldn't be... It wouldn't be sexy, it wouldn't be thrilling, it wouldn't have any of the mystery. It just, uh, it that's part of the imagination thing. Yeah, that would kind of just erase a whole genre. Mm-hmm. And that would be really sad. Because there's some stuff, like, I really like from that period. <laughs> um... Do you have um, uh, movies or TV shows that inspired you as well as books? There definitely are some. Um, I'm struggling to think of <laughs> them right now, but let's see. The Princess Bride, both the book and the movie, is one of my favorites, um, and especially the way that it gets so meta with the storytelling. I'm really drawn to stories that know their archetypes and know how to use those archetypes for humor. So the story I wrote for Writers of the Future actually does sort of that same thing. I'm kind of drawing on like some Arthurian mythology and sort of those types of morality tales and drawing on like some of the Joseph Campbell like hero's journey archetypes and using them to subvert reader expectations and uh, create jokes and things. I think that's great. I mean I got really obsessed about um, Joseph Campbell for a while 
The only thing I didn't understand, and I still don't, is why he thought a woman couldn't have a hero's journey. And he, he all he basically said is uh, it it doesn't hold up as well or something. Just didn't make any sense oh. to me. Did you do you think a woman can have a hero's journey? Absolutely. Like that I hadn't heard that quote attributed to him, but yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. I know. But he actually said that. He said that because um, and if you read his books, he always talks about I mean, there's women in the stories, of course, but it's always the male going off and having their adventure and finding their way into the world and or whatever their their journey is. And I was like, I, and then he had uh, a series of interviews on PBS. And because I had this resurgence of reading it again, I watched it, and I was so disappointed when he said that. Yeah, that really does kind of change the way I'll be thinking about him from now on. So that is pretty disappointing. Yeah. But he, I mean, his analytical mind and, and how he explains the hero's journey. And uh, I mean, if it wasn't for Joseph Campbell, there wouldn't have been Star Wars. I mean, there's so many things, people he inspired. So I'm not taking away from right. talent <laughs> as a mythologist. Yeah. He's very, like you say, he's very analytical, very good at parsing things out and breaking them down into their components. Sometimes a bit too much, in my opinion. I know that like there are people who view him as a bit too much of a reductionist, like Ursula Le Guin had that problem with him. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I, like, I tend to view him kind of that way myself, but that isn't to say that there aren't useful tools that we can get out of his work. I thought it was, and it, I mean, basically I said to myself, well, that's baloney, and so I started working on my own Hero's Journey book. I mean, I, it's, I'm still working on it. I have other books I'm, I'm working on right now, but I actually uh, started writing notes, and I'm like, this, you know, there's got to be a woman's journey. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of more recent books in the fantasy genres especially have been embracing that and kind of turning some of those cliches and stereotypes on their heads. So, And Ursula Le Guin, of course, oh, yeah. was one of the early writers to do that. I love her books. I love all of her books. Oh, they're great. They're, she's one of my favorites as well. Yeah, she's one of my favorites. I've always liked her. I think that, yeah, my my dad gave me, he was trying to introduce my brother and I into his favorite genre, which is science fiction. So he gave me an A. Van Vogt story called Slam. He gave me a book of Ray Bradbury short stories and Ursula Gwynn. It was like one of her books, which I can't remember which one. I think it was one of the first ones in her series. Okay. But um, did your parents... Um, did your parents gift you books to kind of inspire you? They did. And there were always just sort of books sitting around my house growing up. Some of them were, you know, not the sort of books that I really read anymore, but then some of them were things like, I mentioned James Harriet. We read a lot of those stories. Um, if you've ever read those, they're just hilarious. And then uh, My Family and Other Animals by Gerard Jarrell. We would read those on Sunday afternoons. And also those are just like hilarious and gorgeously written. So 
there were a lot of those sorts of stories that had both like I, w- I was taught pretty early that art could also be entertaining mm-hmm. it could be you know edifying and entertaining and it could just sort of open you up to the world I agree I mean I, I love Charlotte's Web when I was a little girl that was one of my first favorite books was Charlotte uh, that was more than you know Bob uh, went to the store to pick up a pail of water. I mean, <laughs> Charles Webb, I think, was one of the first books I read. <laughs> oh, yeah. Did you read that? I did, yeah, and I I think I read that when I was a second grader. Um. So what is... Um, now... You are in Writers of the Future. How did you find out about that? It was someone in my college program who told me about it. There was an older alumni who had become a finalist, I believe, and so that's how I heard about it. So I submitted a story that was sort of, it was sort of Scarlet Pimpernel meets like clock punk, steampunky things. So I submitted that story, and I got an honorable mention for it, which was I had been submitting short stories to magazines for a while, but that was like the first concrete sign I had that I was doing something right. So I swore a very rash oath that I was going to submit every single quarter, and it took me 14 submissions, but I eventually uh, got there. So I, I never missed a quarter, and for almost all of them, I wrote a completely new story. And um, what was the story about that you won? I mean, I, you can't, I don't tell me everything, just a little, like, log line or something. <laughs> it's, it's a satiric fantasy in the style of Terry Pratchett that has a heist element in it and sort of pokes fun at some Arthurian morality things and stuff like that. Because I, it was based on some of the books I was reading at the time, which were Idols of the King by Tennyson, and I was also reading Kill the Farm Boy by Delilah Dawson and Kevin Hearn. So I knew that I could write comedic fantasy, and I was coming towards the end of a deadline. So I just thought that I would throw those stories together and see what came out. It's interesting. Um, are you a big Arthurian fan? I do enjoy Arthur a lot, yeah. I have read um, a lot of La Morta Arthur, and I am actually, right now, I'm reading Once and Future King by T.H. White. It's my very, very first time reading it, and it is just hilarious and wonderful. So I can't believe I've never read it before. <laughs> and um, so now that you are a winner, how did you find out? And are you, are you going to be going to the... Uh, uh, the ceremony and the workshop? I am, yes. Yeah. So that's in October, and I am immensely excited to just meet all the cool writers who are going to be uh, teaching classes there, and I'm excited to meet all of the other winners because I think that a lot of these people will end up being you know, the face of fantasy and sci-fi for the next few decades. And I'm also really hoping to lay a foundation for uh, myself to have a career. So I heard that I, I was a winner from Joni, uh, who's the contest administrator. She called me while I was actually at a 
wedding, I was at the reception and I got a call from a California number. And so I, you know, had always hoped that it would someday be her when I picked up, and it was. So she told me that I was a finalist and that I would have to wait about a week. And then, um, like, a week and a half later, she said that I had won second place. That's cool. That's really cool. Um, so, uh, what book are you in? Uh, it's Writers and Illustrators of the Future, Volume 37. So it is available for pre-order right now, so I hope that people are pre-ordering it. And are you working on anything now, a, a new story or a book? I am, yeah. I'm always working on different stories. I have a novel, it's my fourth novel, that I'm hoping to take to the conference and maybe get some advice on how to find an agent for it. So it's been through six drafts and like 10 or 15, it's like between 10 and 15 beta reads at this point. I'm still waiting for a few of them to come back to me. But So it's pretty polished and I, while I'm waiting to get those last few beta reads, I'm actually working on the sequel. So I'm about 100,000 words into the sequel of it at this point. Cool. And um, are you going to be um, doing any, like, are you going to any uh, conventions or anything like that, virtual or not? I don't have any other big plans at the moment. I've kind of been focusing all my energy towards preparing for Writers of the Future. And then after that, I'm definitely hoping that I'll be able to leverage some of that momentum into getting some good connections and meeting other professionals in the field. Okay, that's great. Um, we're coming to a close. Do you have, um, are you on social media? What is your handle? And also, uh, do you have a website? I do. My website is lukewildman.com. So that's probably the best place for people to follow me. I have some short stories on there for people who want to sample my writing. And I've done audio versions of them as well as podcasts and YouTube videos. And then I have a Facebook, which is Writer. And people can also just find me at Luke Wildman. Um, I connect with a lot of people through my normal Facebook account as well. Then I have a Twitter, which is at Wildman Writes, but I don't use that very often. Okay. Well, you may find yourself picking up on all these things when once you are, you know, out there with your your, your new award and everything. <laughs> I think so. I'm just kind of dipping my toe in the water at the moment, and I'm enjoying making some new connections and things. That's great. Um, well, I want to thank you for coming on my show. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me, Sherry. Thank you, and thank you for chatting with Sherry. Extra hundred dollars in your pocket? 
Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. 